HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash Japan. This week on Meet and 3, we're turning our attention to how the global pandemic is impacting our mental health and how food brings us comfort during these times. I've never understood why people have said I'm brave for solo dining. Food can kind of be a source of solace or it can be a source of excitement or like an activity to, to keep you busy. When there's a crisis, typically the restaurant industry is one of the industries that springs into action in terms of being like, well, come in, we'll take care of you. Tune in to Meet and 3 to learn more about the psychological effects of COVID-19. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Katema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio, not a studio, but my apartment studio in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, due to the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, so this show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my co-guests. And my guest today is Yael Pete, who is a chef with impressive culinary training at top restaurants in New York City, including Prune and Shuko. Until April 2019, she was the co-executive chef at the Karasu, which is a cool Japanese-influenced izakaya-style restaurant in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. Yael and Elena Yamamoto, her co-executive chef, joined me on episode 158 about a year ago to discuss her unique culinary approach and their forthcoming new restaurant called Furious. While getting ready for opening a new restaurant, Yael participated in a global culinary competition called the Washoku World Challenge and went to Japan last February, and she won the precious second prize. So today we'll discuss her experience at the competition, the new restaurant she and Elena are planning to open, how they're coping with the challenging circumstances surrounding the coronavirus, and much, much more. 
But quickly before we start, Japanese is available on Heritage Radio Network website as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have any ideas about the topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanese at heritageweirdwork.org or akikokatayama.com. Now let's start a conversation with Yao Pete. Hello, Yao. Welcome back. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Akiko. So, uh, so for listeners who have has not listened to episode 158, um, tell us about your background and where you're from. How did you get into cooking? Uh, my name is Yael Pete. I'm 30 years old and I live in Brooklyn and I've been cooking for about 10 years. Um, I went to culinary school at French Culinary Institute in 2010 and I've been working in New York for pretty much all of my career. Um, I was making fresh pasta for a long time and doing a lot of seasonal food in small restaurants, typically with uh, open kitchens. But I always had a passion for Japanese food. And I finally got to work at Shuko uh, in 2015. But we were doing sushi omakase, and I really wanted to do a food that was more affordable, more. Um, vegetable forward and kind of more like the way、uh, Japanese food is every day in Japan.、Um, and I think that's a cuisine that a lot of people in America don't know about. And,、um, you know, I, I want to highlight it and be a part of that process because I think the way that Japanese people eat can work anywhere. It, it's not just about、um, fish or, or seaweed, but about. Eating locally、um, and eating seasonally、uh, in, in a real way, beyond those buzzwords. People say, What does that mean? Well, if you, if you go to your farmer's market and see what's growing within 100 miles of your house, you can see、uh, what's in season and what's affordable. And I really, really like to eat that way. And I want that to be more commonplace in America. Wow. So, why would the bat? It's like full of keywords. And、uh, yeah, it's just, you, know, you mentioned. Everyday Japanese food, which is not understood well. And that's so true. Just because it's nobody's fault that sushi became the first thing known to the world, but we don't eat sushi almost like maybe once a month or something like that. So, yeah, and I think、uh, the, what you did with Lena at the Karasu was a、um, very good summary of what you just said.、Um, it's healthy, seasonal. And nothing has to be so special, like you don't have to have raw fish、um, from the special market every day, but you feel like eating、um, Japanese food every day、uh, so that you feel great. You get up in the morning with a lot of energy. So, yeah,、um, so we will discuss what we're going to do at your new restaurant, Furies,、uh, later of the show.、Um, I just wanted to ask you so, you also worked at the Prune, which is kind of Italian American, and the Shugo, there's a Japanese. So, from each place, what do you think you learned? Well, retrospectively, I, I joke and I like to say that Prune was almost more Japanese than Shugo because, in a lot of ways, at Prune, you were kind of eating like、uh, Ichiju Sansai, you know?、Um, and I really wanted that. To be like that in Karasu, but people would frequently just order 
an appetizer and a main course and they would get fried chicken and fried pork. And I'm like, no, no, no. You have to get your little vegetable dishes to complete your meal. You know, you need that balance. And at Prune, um, so many of those dishes were inexpensive, seasonal, small vegetables that I felt like it really kind of reflected a Japanese meal. Right. Uh, even so, though... right. So maybe you can just explain the Ichiju Sansai. Yes, yes, I, I wanted to. The kind right. of the, the, the one soup and the three small plates. Um, and you're always going to have rice in a Japanese meal. Pretty much always. So this idea that your lunch would be a variety of components with different textures and flavors, but very vegetable forward. Um, so you kind of have like your, your small bowls, you know, where you're trying a little bit of everything instead of having one big plate of one type of food. Um, and I love the balance and the health in that. So um, Karasu... It was hard to get people to eat that way, but with Furies, we really wanted to bring forward Ichiju Sansai or the one soup and three dishes and right. your rice. Mm, right. So it's interesting, like you said, the, so the Japanese food always comes from a white, plain white rice because it's, it's, you can eat it. It's really good by itself. A lot of farmers put a lot of soul into creating the perfect bowl, but it's kind of a cushion in between three and dishes so that you can neutralize the flavor as well as the white rice can enhance and balance the flavor of the dishes. So, yeah, that's the classics. That's Ichiju Sansai. And I'm so glad you, that's in your head. That's your foundation of your food. Um, oh, and I love to eat like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you feel good too and satisfied, yeah. right? Okay, so how at this point, after working in different diverse kitchens, how do you call your style cooking? And now, uh, what philosophy is behind it? Um, I think in the modern food scene, especially in New York, um, a lot of people the last decade have been proving how well they can cook. You know, a restaurant was very reflective of the chef and how good they were at cooking. Um, but I think it's really important going forward, especially with the coronavirus. Um, you know, everyone, everyone knows a chef can cook well, but now it's kind of uh, what can your food do and what can your impact do to um, kind of go beyond your doors of your restaurant and go beyond your life. You know, I, um, I really see food as a vessel to educate people and empower people and my goal is to really get closer to where my food is coming from. Mm. Um, you know, I'm really, really interested in agriculture and what is working and what isn't working in America right now with the way we grow and distribute food. So the further I go, the less I, I want to prove people that I can cook, but show them just how many industries and just how much of life is connected to what your meal is in front of you. Mm, right. So it sounds um, like uh, chefs has been um, users of ingredients, but now becoming more like a cheerleaders of great food. That ingredients Yeah, and, and a teacher, you know, in a lot of ways I would love, I'd be honored to be a teacher, but I still have a lot to learn too. <laughs> right. Well, the best that teacher says they are eternal students. So <laughs> Correct. <laughs> right. 
All right, so let's talk about the Japanese culinary competition that you participated earlier this year.、Uh, that is called the Washoku World Challenge. So, what is the Washoku World Challenge?、Um, the challenge is run by the Japanese government and it encourages non Japanese chefs from around the world to display their abilities and knowledge of、uh, quite traditional Japanese cuisine.、Um, I was encouraged to submit by Hiroko Shimbo, and I was pretty nervous.、Mm. Hiroko、um, is,、uh, he came to the show, but he, she's really an、uh, amazing she's, Japanese. She's a mentor、instructor. to me. She's definitely like a mentor. Right.、Um, and, you know, I didn't really realize how Western my cooking was until I started showing her images of what I was making. And that was、um, a huge turning point for me. To really put into practice what I love about Japanese food、um, between seasonality, color, composition, so kind of pragmatic elements and kind of artistic elements. And it's wild to me because this is something that was happening after I was running Karasu for three years. So I, I had a new moment to realize just how little I knew.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was、right. like, I've been a, sh- a chef of a Japanese restaurant, but look, I still don't know a lot. <laughs> right. Well, the Japanese chefs are known for training like forever. And I heard,、um, you know, the enrollment of Japanese cuisine area in culinary schools in Japan are declining because it's so, so hard and you have to be patient and hardworking.、Um, yeah. And then this competition, there was a seventh in the history, right? Almost annual event.、I、yes,、think. the seventh. Right. And the judges are Yoshihiro Murata and other, like the top people, knowing classic Japanese cuisines. So it must be really.、Uh, yes, they、scary. were very, very intimidating,、um, <laughs> but also very impressive and kind. Right. So who participated in the competition? I mean, well, actually,、um, who, can, who can sign up? Like, what's the qualification required? For- you. You have to have been a chef and been working in Japanese food, I think, for at least five years.、Mm-hmm. Um, so I was competing in New York, which can be, you know, intimidating also because a lot of people are very, very skilled.、Mm-hmm. Um, you know, competing in New York or Los Angeles, I feel like, is, is going to be very competitive. Right. So. There was a, a West Coast competition and then the East Coast competition was in New York in January.、Mm. Okay, and you participated in New York competition, right? Correct. Right. So, who are the other competitors?、Um, the there were five other competitors, and two of them were、um, people I knew who became very good friends of mine、uh, John Clip, who you interviewed. Who won the regionals, and、um, David Israeloff, who I think you might know as well. Right, he came to the、um, show too. Yeah. Yeah, and he's, and he's wonderful too. And we've actually become very, very good friends, the three of us, ever since.、Mm. Um, they're extremely passionate and generous people, and I really respect them. I love them. And, and after that <laughs> night, Um, after that night, it was difficult because I got third place, and there was a, a different girl who was supposed to go to World、um, Washoku. But I ended up spending a lot of time with those two guys, and 
they made a fantastic meal for the judges afterwards, just for fun, mm-hmm. um, in David Israelov's apartment. And it was one of the best meals I've ever had. Uh, it was beautiful, but it was approachable. And Hiroko was there. So it was it was intimidating, too, because the judges were in his house. <laughs> but it was honestly an unbelievable time. And then Anna, the second place winner, withdrew um, because of coronavirus. But at that point, um, I, I hadn't been nervous yet in February. It felt very disconnected from America. And I said I would go in her place. And I was really excited. Right. Um, and the destination was Japan, too, which is pretty, <laughs> compared to here, it's much safer than being here and going to Japan. Yeah, actually. and I, you know, honestly, I kind of wish I never came home. Um, <laughs> it was it was the last kind of normal week of my life when I was in Tokyo, and everyone is very clean and very considerate and very safe there, and I felt very safe there. Mm, right. So, um, so the final round of Washoku World Challenge was held in Tokyo on February 20, 20th and 21st uh, yes. earlier this year. So who were the other competitors at the final round? Um, there were two men from China. One of them was from Hong Kong. Um, and then there was a young man from London and a girl from Spain. Mm. So it was a very diverse crowd, and um, we all got along very well. Right. Oh, that's great. So it's not just the competing, it's about networking in a way. Absolutely. Right. Okay. And uh, so, uh, so what, was, uh, the dish, what were the dishes that you cooked at the final round? So the first day we did a nimono wan and everyone had to use exactly the same ingredients. And the second day we had to make kind of like a like a hasun or a, a seasonal plate displaying um, a lot of traditional techniques mm-hmm. and displaying your knowledge of Japanese cuisine and the season. So everyone got to use their own ingredients. Okay. So, uh, so for listeners who are not familiar with Nimono One first and the Hassan, uh, who, what are they? Um, it, you know, simply put, Nimono One is a soup. Um, and the Hassan is a plate that can have up to or at least five different preparations. It's almost like a sample of the season. So mm. I did a grilled item, a fried item, a simmered item all reflective of late February. So at that time in Japan, winter was just starting to end and spring, the buds were just starting to kind of burst forth from the ground. And you'll see those motifs very popular in Hasun and Kaiseki, you know, budding and and new birth of spring uh, is a beautiful time to make a Hasun. Mm, Right. Yeah. So the basically... In Kaiseki, I mean, it sounds like uh, the World Challenge really features Kaiseki cuisine, which is a formal yes, Japanese yes. dinner. And uh, so this the soup, it sounds simple, but you have to have a perfect dashi stock, which is very hard, I guess. And also um, the hasen, an expression of seasonality, that's really the essence of Kaiseki cuisine. And then um, some people say in Japan, uh, the seasonality is not four, but 24. Or some people say like 52 or something. So, yeah, it must be challenging, but uh, it's fun too to express, I guess. 
Yes. Um, I was really excited because this is my third time going to Japan in the last couple of years. And every time I go, it's been a different season. So I'm really grateful for that. You know, I've seen um, the height of spring and I've seen the beginning of fall. And now I was seeing the end of winter. Uh, right. So it's really nice to go at different times of year. And um, it was exciting to cook, but it was more challenging than I could have ever imagined. And having so many people watching you and recording you is <laughs> also really, really challenging. Mm, right. And I also heard that this year's theme um, of the competition was texture and mouthfeel. So yes. what is your take on them and how did you express it on your dishes? Um, it was, it was really exciting. You know, I started by thinking about different textures first, and then I thought about the seasonal items. So I kind of made a, a chart, the texture, the item, the color, um, making sure I kind of had a balance, mostly vegetables, a little bit of seafood. And then I thought about, um, what I could realistically do in three hours, But we have overnight, which is really cool. That didn't exist in the regional competition. So to, to have that overnight time means you can marinate something properly.、Um, and having one day to prepare and then a second day to assemble also expands your options. So you kind of look at it from a, an analytical way, a little bit like an office worker. Right.、Um, <laughs> Right. So, what was the, the texture range and mouse feel range like、uh, from soft to, I don't know, slimy to something? Like, what was your variation?、Um, I, I, had, I had all the Japanese words written down, and I've no, I know some of them、um, just from experience, like neba neba, which is refreshing but slimy and, and、uh, you know, crunchy. So, I did、um, a clam, which was lightly simmered, and that was a chewy texture. And I made a ume konten with it, which is also chewy, but a completely different kind of chewy.、Mm. <laughs> um, fried fish to achieve crispiness and a roasted piece of amadai. Once again, two totally different crispiness.、Mm. And then simmered vegetables, which were very tender, versus. Um, raw vegetables, which were very firm in a sesame dressing, which is creamy.、Mm. So that's a myriad of textures at that point. <laughs> right. Wow. So, yeah, I saw a picture of what you cooked and、uh, it's, it's beautiful. So, yeah, congratulations.、Um, I was very nervous and I didn't think I would do that well because I. I really wish I had、um, experimented with the composition of the plate more. But because I wasn't working in a restaurant at the time, it was a lot harder for me to get the ingredients I needed in America to practice.、Um, and I was cooking in my house. So once again, I, I wasn't using all the professional tools that I wanted to use. And it can be difficult to make restaurant quality food from a home kitchen.、Mm. But you did it. So I did it. Yeah, I did it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I really showed your actual、um, capability. So, what do you think、uh, you learned from the competition? Oh my God, so much.、Um, I learned a lot from watching other people、um, and seeing the other competitors work. I was so impressed.
I'm blown away. Um, and I think I ended up doing well in the end because I stayed very organized and clean. And I think that people don't realize that that's a big part of Japanese cooking and a big part of being a successful cook in general to make sure you're cooking things in the right order and consistently organizing your station. Um, the day we were cooking the Nimono, I quickly learned the space and how I should be set up. And then by the time we were doing the Hasun, I,、uh, I felt like I had a much better handle on where my equipment was and, and what I was using. There was nothing on my table that I wasn't using, and it was all set up in a certain order. <laughs> that, that is as important as the cooking.、Mm, wow. So that's wonderful. So it's beyond、um, the cultural exposure, but it's more like learning from other chefs and by experience itself. So, yeah, it sounds like、uh, this Washoku World Challenge is really worth、um, like. I don't know, trying to participate for whoever. Absolutely.、Listeners. Yep. All right. So, again, the listeners, if you're interested, it's called the Washoku World Challenge. And、um, uh, you can Google and you can find the English website as well. So, all right. So, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about Yale's new restaurant and how she's dealing with the current extremely challenging circumstances due to the coronavirus outbreak. So, please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's. But since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square Online Store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery. So, you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.comslash goslash Japan. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs Podcast Casting Live from. Studio in my apartment in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. 
Uh, I'm your host, Aki Kotayama, and my guest today is Yao Pete, who is a chef with impressive culinary training at top restaurants in New York City, including Prune and Shuko and Karasu. Until last April, she was a co-executive chef at Karasu, a cool Japanese-influenced izakaya-style restaurant in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. So now, uh, let's talk about what's happening with you now. So last time we were in the studio at episode 158, uh, we discussed your new restaurant, Furies, uh, and you were forming up the concept and have not found, you had not found the place yet. So what's going on now? So the timeline was um, we partnered up with a restaurateur um, who we love and appreciate and working with him was a pleasure And he helped us find a space in the fall, and then we signed a lease in December, and that space was in the West Village. Um, So right around the time I was in the Washoku Challenge, we were applying for a liquor license, and we were about to start demolition and build the restaurant, but we hadn't finished fundraising, and then the coronavirus hit, and we put everything on pause. Um. Mm. So we had a bunch of events lined up for April. We had um, dinner parties that we had to cancel. We had uh, expositions in Brooklyn and in Texas that we were supposed to go to that we canceled. Um, and that was that was very difficult for us. Right. Yeah, that's... <laughs> who could have expected something like this could happen? But uh, so... What kind of adjustment, just still the concept is the same, so maybe can we flesh, um, you know, the concept of Furies at this point? Well, so the concept was going to be very troublesome with coronavirus because we were going to be chefs who were doing um, kaiseki kapo style, which means we're serving you directly, we're right in front of you making your food, Um, And that's very antithetical to coronavirus, to being six (laughs) feet apart and to not being in contact with people. So, and we were only going to be doing dinner and no takeout. So we knew Mm. that this wasn't going to work now. So our first thought was um, considering doing takeout. You know, we love making bento and doing teishoku food. So, you know, we thought it could be a good opportunity to do those cuisines for people. Um, so we, we reformatted the concept a little bit and our partner told us we were ready to go into demo um, last week. And we were very nervous because we still didn't have all the fundraising. So what we did was we sent out an email, including to you, on Friday, talking to our investors, seeing if they were still interested in the concept and telling them about our ideas going forward to make the concept uh, viable but unfortunately, what happened was we got really um, intense feedback from our investors. Um, they love our concept and think it's a great concept. But unfortunately, because of the atmosphere in New York, um, because of coronavirus, our investors agreed that we shouldn't go through with the project at all. Um, mm. We hadn't fully fundraised, like I mentioned before. And um, there's a lot of competition right now with takeout. And a lot of very, very successful restaurants are not going to be reopening and have not been able to sustain themselves. And I think that um, customers aren't understanding that yet. 
But when places start to reopen, I think people are going to notice that a lot of their favorite places are missing forever. Um, and it breaks my heart to think about the industry that I love and I've worked in my entire adult life uh, is, is crippled. And especially in New York, which was the center of American eating, in my opinion. Mm. Um, we've been hit the hardest and most places are not going to reopen. So uh, it doesn't feel like reality now, but it's coming soon. And unfortunately, um, we're a part of that wave. We're, we're not going to open in our Christopher Street location and we're breaking the lease. And I'm very, very sad, but a part of me is um, relieved as well mm, because, um, you know, we, we have some other ideas now of what we're going to do going forward. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm not in a position to say anything relevant, but it sounds like it's the right thing to do right now because there's so much uncertainty. And rather than just swim in the cloud, you can maybe, you know, I think in a way, doing something else for now, you can democratize the idea of what you're going to offer or something. Everybody's just taking. A little reset break, and sounds like I think it's、uh, not necessarily a bad time for you. Yeah, it's, it's not、um, necessarily a bad thing at all.、Um, I mean, I think if we wanted to open our concept exactly the way that it was right now, it would probably take、um, years for it to be successful、um, because I think. The way people eat out is going to be changed for a long time. And tourism is a beating heart of New York, and that's going to be damaged for a long time as well.、Um, and that's directly linked to restaurants. So, you know, we've considered opening a concept outside of New York in cities、um, where the pandemic is much lower and where. More representation is needed because, you know, Japanese food in New York is, is flooded. And I think there's a lot of other places in the country where it could really thrive,、um, mm-hmm. as well as this kind of takeout and bento concept we're doing. We think that it could do better, in, possibly in another city.、Right. So, you know, maybe it's time to move from my home. You know, I've lived in New York most of my life, I was born here. So, it might、mm-hmm. be time for a change. Right. Well, actually, you were right, though.、Um, by having you outside New York, they're going to be.、Um, News, a new place like inspiration that could spread beyond just diners or area of you know the culture of eating Japanese food. So, yeah, that's very exciting. But do you have any plans actually moving out of New York City at this point?、Um, because we decided to end the project only two days ago, <laughs> we um. <laughs> We're, we're not going anywhere for now.、Um, Alina is looking at、um, consulting for a project on the West Coast, but that's a brand new thing. So I'm not going to go into detail about that. And、um, I'm doing some work for Vitamix Blenders, which is really fun because I've competed with them too, and I love their product. And、um, I get to connect using a, a product that I like. For a cause that I like. I'm going to talk a lot about、um, farmers markets and community gardens in New York. So I've got some cool side projects going on. And I think we're going to lay low for the summer 
and try to save money and do small projects. And then maybe in the fall, we'll think about where and if we want to move. Mm, right. Um, because I think uh, the Fury's concept really is viable, and I was looking forward to the opening. So I hope you're going to keep it and then, you know, incubate it. And then eventually, sooner or later, you're going to make it happen. Then I, I will definitely be there. Hopefully, the first. Yeah, person. we. <laughs> We love we love the concept and we definitely don't want to let it go. Um, but, you know, I think it's a great opportunity again to go back to the drawing book and learn. And then when we get back into the project again, it'll be even better than it was before. Right. Um, because Alina and I are still pretty young and I honestly did not see myself opening a restaurant at 29. <laughs> um, I was excited, but I also felt like I could do a lot more preparation. So, you know, um, hopefully, I mean, my dream would be to go back to Japan for a little while. That would be very cool. Um, you know, if they'll have me, it's so much safer over here or over there than here right now. Right. Well, now you so, have connections in the Japanese traditional Kaiseki community, like in Kyoto, right? Yes, yes. Right. And, John, um, and I, I mean, you have connections for John Clip or <laughs> many other people. So. Right, I'm so fortunate and it's, it's very exciting. So maybe I could go back for a while and, and learn even more mm -hmm. and be more prepared. Right, that sounds exciting. Um, yeah, and uh, so I, well, I just really want to mention, you know, we exchanged, uh, before the show, we exchanged some information and then, you know, the email you sent out on Friday also and summarize some uh, um, cultural issue in terms of, you know, like uprising happening in Black White Matter thing. And uh, I just wanted to hear more about um, what actions should be taken, what you are planning to take through theories and, you know, in general about this matter. Well, so the issue that was existing in America before coronavirus happened is that um, money-wise, restaurants were usually opened with the help of investors, with people who have a lot of money but are not really involved in the project. And when you made profit, you would spend that profit paying the investors back. But they're not always connected to the project. And... In America, basically, restaurants made very little profit, even though people might think that food is expensive. Typically, a New York restaurant, if they're doing extremely well, will make no more than 10% profit. Mm. And um, that's after paying people minimum wage, people who are skilled, talented, educated chefs. Um, people were making bad money. They were working very hard. They weren't getting health care. So all of this was the, made restaurants already broken. And Alina and I saw this as a severe problem. And we were actually considering making our restaurant a nonprofit, which at first sounded scary because I still need to keep a roof over my head. Nothing fancy, but, you know, I, I need to make money. Um, but the more we learned about nonprofits, the more we saw an opportunity to have employees working for us who were actually making a real living wage um, and then taking that profit money and instead of paying back investors, getting grants from our government and from our city and pouring that money back 
into the community, into people who need food, into people who want to learn how to grow food. Um, and we realized that maybe if more restaurants operated this way, the employees working at the restaurant could have a better quality of life and the restaurant could go beyond giving a plate of dinner to someone who can afford it. It could suddenly create opportunities for people outside of that bubble. Because um, Furies wasn't going to be inexpensive. You know, a lot of people wouldn't be able to afford it. And we didn't want to have a kind of insular experience like that where only privileged people could get to eat with us. Right. Right. So, well, I think everybody's now rethinking the structure of this. This is not a restaurant business, a stock market and uh, the delivery fee issues like, you know, the delivery service takes up like 20-30% of a profit and every single restaurateur I spoke to, we can't do business with them. But the thing is, without their um, service, people don't buy food from their website even. It's like you have to really overhaul this thing, like fundamentally clean up the system. So yeah, I don't know, maybe coronavirus created a good opportunity to review the system that's not functioning very well. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that it unintentionally cast a spotlight on these issues for people who don't work in restaurants. Because until then, I was telling people by word of mouth, person to person, like, these are the issues, these are the expenses. And um, it was hard to reach a huge crowd and really drill it into their heads that that restaurants are broken in America. So um, I think there really is a silver lining to this and an opportunity for us to change the way we feed each other. Mm, right. Yeah, I think uh, well, we love restaurants and I started to see more people like New York City's restrictions getting looser and I see a lot of people just surrounding restaurants who's just offering only drinks and they're craving. This We are very social here and restaurants are very important but it's really revealed. It's not going to keep doing this because it's not good. Like workers are like slavery in the slavery system that we learned. Even I don't work in the restaurant. I write about the restaurants, but it's shocking how bad the situation is. So hopefully after this, uh, things are going to change a little bit, at least. Well, and unfortunately, due to the kind of ethos and economy of America, you know, in New York, typically most places were open seven days a week. People were able to get what they wanted when they wanted it. And in a way, I don't think that's a good thing, that level of convenience. Um, in so many other countries I've been to, a lot of businesses aren't open seven days a week. And it gives an opportunity for the employees to have a better quality of life. And Furies was only supposed to be open five days a week. And people said... You're crazy. You'll never be able to pay rent. You'll never be able to keep your doors open. Um, but I really hope that post-coronavirus, there is a shift that says it's important for employees, just like white-collar office people, to have a five-day work week. And that means that their businesses can't be open seven days a week. Right. 100%. Yes. Um, so what do you think um, is the best way to support uh, restaurants and the restaurant industry right now? Um, 
I think, like you said before, to make sure that they have takeout and delivery on their website and not order through Seamless or Grubhub, um, or to actually go to the place and get takeout when you're there. And um, in general, to steer away from, you know, buying from franchises, they're always going to be okay. McDonald's is going to survive the test of time. Um, but I think as a New Yorker, one of the greatest things you can do is be shopping at the farmer's markets. Um, in general, grocery shopping outdoors is a lot safer with coronavirus. And you're flooding your money directly back into the local economy when you're buying from a New York farmer's market. Right. Um, I went for the first time this afternoon in three months, and I was very happy to be there. So <laughs> right. in general, put your money into local businesses. Mm. Right. And I heard that farmers are actually badly hit because a lot of them deal with restaurants and they lost clients overnight. And uh, it's, it's hard for them to develop uh sales directly to consumers because they are farmers so yeah it's just great to go to farmers market and also i think you can sign up for direct uh shopping from farmers website if they have one yeah and a lot of a lot of purveyors have um shifted to delivering to um customers as well like baldor uh b-a-l-d-o-r we were working with them for years at karasu and they deliver to people's homes now, um, which is great for them and the customer and the farmer. So I'm glad they're doing that. Right. And I, I keep hearing uh, great chefs. Um, they don't get paid. They just partner up with a um, nonprofit and the cook for essential workers uh, or, you know, uh, people who lost jobs in the restaurant industry. And we should not forget about them because they are just doing it for just for the sake of doing it so yeah it's unbelievable the work that restaurants are doing right now it is it's risky and it's um gracious and you know i'm, I'm commending everyone who's doing it right yeah and i heard uh, the essential workers are really happy about you know this food is the only kind of oasis during the hard work time many of them don't have even time to eat and then there's free food, delicious restaurant quality food delivered, and it really helps. And I can probably, without that good food, it's, it's really hard to get through the day, right? So, yeah, I think we should try to remember this, how much good stuff uh, offered by uh, chefs and uh, restaurant workers right now. Right. And I mean, imagine in the future going forward, maybe there's less restaurants that you can walk into and eat, but more food businesses where um, people are preparing food for other government workers. So you've got people who are cooking and making a good wage and they're providing food to, to workers who need it. Um, I could see that being a government run business model that would be awesome going forward uh, from the coronavirus and, and a really necessary service. So instead of just converting uh, a restaurant into that service, more of those services popping up. Right. Yeah, and also like all those, um, you know, marches and uh, protests, they're free food. And the food is uh, communication. It's expression of support and love. And it's, it's amazing, this whole 
um, chaotic situation proved how food is important to everybody. So, yeah. It's, yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. So, um, yeah. Um, well, initially, we were going to discuss your theories, uh, c- upcoming plan, but I will wait and, uh, yeah, keep me posted and I look forward to having you again. Regardless of what we're going to do, uh, you and Elena coming back and then we're just, regardless of restaurants project or not, we can just share about, you know, all about what's happening, what's in your mind, because you guys are very inspiring. Thank you. I mean, I think no matter what, Alina and I are going to be involved in food and we're going to stick together. (laughs) And maybe after this, we can do work that affects and helps even more people than than just having a beautiful dinner. It's like maybe maybe we can go beyond that. That's our bigger goal with the future. Right. That's exciting. So um, where can we find you? Updates online. Um, the Furies Instagram is still open. It's at Furies NYC. And we will be posting updates, um, especially if we're doing events in the future. We'll still be working together kind of like a small dinner party group. Um, and my Instagram is... Um, smoked saba and i put updates there but lately i haven't been posting uh because i've been trying to be more involved with the social movements going on in new york city mm. right all right so it's the furies nyc that's instagram yes all right great so thank you so much for joining us today Al, and uh good luck Thank you so much, Shakiko. <laughs> All right. So, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics for guests, please contact us at japaneeds.heritageradionetwork.org or akikwaten.com. Japaneeds is always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Matt Patterson, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.